0: This is the Hockey Podcast Network, your home for hockey talk on every team in the NHL. On this week's episode, I'm going to be looking into forward depth and scoring. We've all heard that narrative that you need depth in order to win games. I'm putting it to the test this week. Joining me on the stat chat is John from the Oil Country Podcast. He knows a thing or two about top-heavy lineups. This is Ice Analytics. welcome to episode number 19 of Ice Analytics. I am your host, Matthew Arp. Hope y'all are doing good today. Hope you're staying safe. Take care of yourselves. Thanks for tuning in. And on this episode, I'm going to be regaling you with an age-old question that I feel like we've been asking since hockey was born. How much does scoring depth matter? How important is it to have a deep roster? You turn on any news network, you turn on any broadcast, and they'll tell you How important it is to have scoring depth and how bad it is to have a top heavy lineup because you just match against that line, you shut them down, game over. And I think that makes a lot of sense on paper. If you have more scoring depth, you can't, you know, it's not as easy to shut down a team. So they should perform better. We're putting it to the test on Number Crunch. And on the Stat Chat, I'm joined by John from the Oil Country podcast, representing the Edmonton Oilers on the Hockey Podcast Network. It should come to no one's surprise that the Oilers have a pretty top-heavy lineup. And I'm curious to get their thoughts on how much they think it really matters relying on a handful of players for a vast majority of your offense. Let's get into it, shall we? On this week's Number Crunch, I'm going to be breaking down the narrative of having scoring depth in your forwards core. And I'm gonna be asking the following questions. Which teams are the most top heavy? Which teams are the most balanced? And how much does it really matter? First things first, one of the narratives that we hear all the time is the importance of having scoring depth in your forwards core. Why does this matter? Who cares about scoring depth? Shouldn't it just matter that you're winning games? What's it matter where the goals are coming from or the points are coming from? Well, injuries, in-game matchups, and having a cold streak can all nullify a single player or even a top line's scoring potential. Theoretically speaking, especially when you're talking about the playoffs, when you're talking about matching lines and home ice advantage, you do not want to rely on one individual player or one individual line to produce all your points. That just makes sense, right? That's the theory we're going to test, and I propose two different ways that we can test this. First is based on percentage of goals for your team that individual players contribute. And second, a ratio of goals between your best scores and your depth scores. So let me break down how I'm going to do the first one. We want to look at the total number of points that a team scored in a given season and how distributed those point totals are. So how do we do that well most teams have three or four players that do most of the heavy lifting producing somewhere between 30 to 45 percent of your team's total points so based on that logic i want to look at how many players produce half of your team's total points because that means the other half of the points are coming from the rest of the team so if you got three players producing 50 percent. You know, the rest of the team really isn't pulling their weight, but if your top seven scores are producing 50% of your points, you know, it's a very equally distributed or evenly distributed scoring amongst a lot more forwards. The second thing I'm going to do to test this is looking at this ratio of goals. And this is something I just totally made up because when I did a little research to try to figure out what the industry standard was for how do you measure depth or how do you calculate depth? There isn't one. I cannot find a standard that everybody uses to quantify depth, which makes my life a lot more difficult. So I had to make something up. So when this methodology blows up and everybody's using it and you hear about this on Sportsnet and TSN in like three years from now, just remember where you heard it first. You heard it first here, folks. I spent the last couple of days racking my brain, trying to figure out a way to quantify scoring depth. And this is what I came up with. You take your team's top, two scoring forwards and come up with an average of how much they score so if your best score put up i don't know let's say 60 points at even strength and your second best score put up 40 at even strength then you know the average between those two would be 50. so if that that would be your first number 50. and then what you do is you divide that number by the average between your sixth and seventh scoring forwards So this isn't based on depth charts. This is based on production. So first and second top scorers on your team get an average. Sixth and seventh top scoring forwards on your team and divide that by the original number. So essentially, you get a ratio of just how many more points your top two point producers produce over your your middle of the pack guys, the guys in the sixth spot and the seventh spot, which is essentially, you know, we're talking, you know, presumably second third liners which you know i would consider to be a good metric for depth so that's what i'm doing that's the second thing i propose to do is you get this ratio you divide the numbers of your best scores from your middle of the pack scores that gives you a pretty strong indication of how much better your top players are from you know your your second third line players your depth those are the two ways i'm going to test this theory and see how much depth really matters so let's start with the question of which teams are most top-heavy and which teams are most balanced and we're going to start with the first test also by the way i'm going back to 2016 2017 so the last three years and i'm only looking at even strength i don't care about power plays or special teams or empty netters or any of that crap i'm looking at even strength goals you might be surprised because based on the narratives you hear out there you would expect boston and edmonton to lead the way each of the past three seasons but spoiler alert Boston doesn't take the top spot any of the past three years. So if we go back to 2016-2017, the team that was the most top-heavy, Winnipeg Jets. Shifley, Ellers, Line, and Wheeler accounted for 55% of all of their team's forwards points. A bunch of teams had six players that contributed for 55% of their team's offense but the most well-balanced team is the Dallas Stars with Sagan, Ben, Faxa, Spezza, Shore, and Russell producing just over half of all of their scoring. In 2017-2018, Philly takes the crown with Giroux, Couturier, Konechny, and Voracek accounting for nearly 60% of all their forwards points. And you can compare that to the Rangers who had seven players account for the same percentage of their team's offensive production. Hayes, Zuccarello, Foss, Busnevich, Nash, Vasey, and JT Miller. All those guys accounted for the same percentage of their team's points as four in Philly. Which brings us to last year, 2018-2019. Surprise, surprise. Edmonton Oilers, oh my god, McDavid, Dre Seidel, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins accounted for 52% of all even strength points. And if you compare that to a team like the Ducks, who, yeah, had a, a lot less overall points, but 52% of their total offense came from Getzlock, Silverberg, Henrique, Raquel, Richie, and Rowney. On face value, you can see there's a big difference between having three or four players accounting for 50%, half of your team's offensive production at even strength, from from the forward position and some of these other teams who have six, seven, you know, players that are giving you that same kind of production, it's a little bit more balanced, right? But if we look at things in terms of ratio, and as I mentioned before, you average the top two goal scorers divided by the average of your six seventh goal scorers on your team. And while this is nice to look at, there's not much more I can really do with this other than say, okay, this is how much offense you're getting from X number of people. It's hard to really, uh, evaluate this in a quantitative manner. so this is why I wanted to use the second because once I get that ratio number that's something I can work with and test. So if we go back to 2016 2017 and using the ratio of the of your top end goal scoring to your depth goal scoring, there was definitely a significant relationship between that ratio and the number of points you had that season. For every one increase in ratio, or essentially that year, the difference between Washington and Boston, your team finishes with about 16 less standings points. So what we find in 16-17 is that this really does matter a lot. You want to have a well-rounded team. You don't want an extremely high ratio. You don't want your top two goal scorers scoring at a clip of, you know, two and a half times the number of points as your six and seven, as your depth guys, and that's what it was in Boston that year. A majority of playoff teams, with the only exceptions being Edmonton, Chicago, Pittsburgh, and Montreal, were all in the top six and having well-rounded balanced teams. You're talking about teams whose top two players were only producing about 30 to 50% more points than your depth players, which is good, right? Well, then 2017, 2018 happened. And what I find is that your depth ratio literally has no effect on standings points the two teams that led the league in depth were the new york rangers and the buffalo sabers and unfortunately they finished with the worst and fifth worst records in the league philly dallas new jersey colorado were all top five most top heavy teams and guess what they all had 90 plus points in the regular season and then last year the unthinkable happened top-heavy teams actually performed statistically better than more balanced teams. Although it's not statistically significant, we just see it in that direction. You got the Sens, who finished with the best ratio, in my opinion, the most balanced team in the league, and they finished with the worst record in the league. So this really begs the question, how much does this matter? How much does depth really matter? Well, long story short, over the course of the past three-plus seasons, Your scoring depth is totally insignificant on your point totals at the end of the year. Now, this doesn't negate the value of having depth scoring in key situations or allowing you to limit the number of minutes that your top players are playing or even injury substitutes. Because all those things are really real implications of having good depth. As a team, you want to be able to rest your starters more, limit their minutes the way Philly was doing this season. You want to be able to substitute for an injury that you may have in your top six move somebody up, and replace that production. But you shouldn't fret if your team is top-heavy or gloat if your team has a ton of scoring depth because, honestly, it doesn't seem to matter at all over the course of the regular season. And not to belabor the point too much or anything, but having a long Stanley Cup run doesn't necessarily depend on this either. I mean, Boston is one of the few teams we've seen in the past three years that have been in the bottom half of teams that are top-heavy. But that isn't to say that you can't win the Stanley Cup built that way. Because there's not really any evidence that uh, it matters as much as we think it does. And on that note, I'm excited to bring somebody else in here so you don't have to listen to me talk anymore. And we'll get into this on the Stat Chat. On this week's Stat Chat, I'm joined by John, co-host from the Oil Country Podcast. You can find him on Twitter, at Oil Country Pod. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, I'm stoked. I've been looking forward to this all week.
0: That's awesome. Well, hopefully it's not a major disappointment then. <laughs> <I don't laughs> not sure will Not
1: not not raising the bar too too high here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, before we jump into this week's topic, I do want to get your thoughts on the Oilers season in general. You know, it's been I don't need to tell you this, but it, you know, it's been a tough decade and a half. Um, you know, reaching the playoffs only once back in sixteen seventeen. And things were looking pretty promising entering this COVID break. 83 points in 71 games, three points back from the division lead. Generally speaking, what is your assessment of their performance this season?
1: I mean, as an Oilers fan, I think it's difficult to not be happy right now, or at least, you know, before this COVID break started. But we kind of went into the season with the expectations of, you know, playing meaningful games down the stretch as well as hopefully making the playoffs. I think that was kind of the, the bare minimum, you know, if we missed by a point or two, it wouldn't have been the end of the world, but everybody really wanted to just get back into the playoffs. And, you know, obviously we were on pace to do that and even maybe exceed that getting, you know, home ice advantage into the first round. So, you know, just generally speaking, I think it's, it's difficult to not be happy about, where the team was trending. The only frustrating thing is obviously like all hockey fans that we don't get to watch our team right now, but there's a, a lot of positives to uh, to take away from the the season so far for the Oilers. And, you know, hopefully that we do get hockey and get to see some playoffs this year.
0: Definitely. Well, speaking of which, I mean, we don't exactly know what the plan is. And and I know if if we assume for a second that the season does come back at some point mm-hmm. this year and we end up, in a direct playoff situation. No regular season, we just go right into the playoffs. The Oilers first round matchup could be determined, you know, based on how they see these things. Are they gonna go by current standings? You know, different teams have different games, number uh, number of games played. So are they gonna use like a point percentage? The Oilers could be matched up against the Flames or the Canucks. What's your preference if you had a choice between those two?
1: I just got to point out that I had a huge smile on my face as soon as you said that we could be matched up against the Flames or the Canucks. I, I like both of those matchups. Um, I think the, the logical side of it, I mean, and then speaking for my co-host Kyle, I believe as well here, both of us for the last maybe two three months were, when we looked at the Pacific Division outlook, thought that the Canucks were going to be the easiest run as far as the teams that were kind of in contention. And I don't mean that in like a disrespectful way. I think they've got a really exciting team, but I think they're just, when you look at their makeup of their roster, they took a really big step forward, but it, it just seems like to me to a roster that's a year or two away from really making some noise in the playoffs. So as far as, you know, having the best opportunity, I think it's the Canucks. And I'd say that against like the Yotes or, or any other team in the, in the Pacific division right now, but as far as the like passion of the battle of Alberta goes, it, it would be such a great thing for this province to have a flames Oilers battle of Alberta first round. And I, it's not even, you know, when I say the Canucks being the easier one, it's not even that I'm hundred percent worried that we're going to lose to the flames as a biased Oilers fan. I am, you know, I'm confident that we'd beat the flames in the first round. But the other thing with that is whether you're a Flames fan or an Oilers fan, whichever team loses in that round, you are going to get ripped apart from all the other fans for the next like eight months at least. So it's a little bit more high risk, high reward when it comes to the Flames where the Canucks, there's obviously a rivalry there, but I think they'd have a little bit easier of a round. Um, For the sake of just the passion, I'd have to say personally, I'd rather see a Flames-Oilers first round, but I'd I'd really be fine with either of those. I think it'd be a a great first round. And honestly, I think the Oilers win win that series either way
0: all i can envision if there's a, a flames oilers first round matchup is whoever wins that matchup is really going to lose because they're going to be so beat the hell up yeah it, uh <laughs> it's not even going to matter like whoever they play in the next round i feel like it reminds me of like leafs bruins back in the day or you know caps and, and penguins back in the day where It felt like whoever came out of that series was just so physically drained that it was a disadvantage in the next matchup.
1: I think so. And I think that's the one, you know, the one real negative there is like that's going to be, you're likely coming into that series with injuries. And I mean, injuries happen through every playoff run, but going into a first round almost guaranteeing that you might have a big, big injury or two isn't really exactly what you want. But I can't imagine, you know, as much as I'd like to see it happen unless the Flames you know, laid an egg like they did the year before, I really just can't imagine that series ending quickly. I think that goes you know, most likely a minimum of six games. So I think you do bring up a very valid point that you know, whatever team does come through there, let's just assume it's Edmonton for the sake of argument, they're likely coming out of there a little bit black and blue for sure. And, and not even joking here, but that's, it's easy to dig on him. But I think Lucic actually plays a bigger factor there than he does in the regular season, I think that, that that could really play into his strengths. It's just a question of, you know, how big of an impact he can have, I guess. But I think if, as long as he can keep up to the play, he, there's no doubt that he's still a very physical guy.
0: I know we we're talking about playoffs and everything. And, mm-hmm. and and this is actually a great segue because everybody knows the Oilers have some extremely gifted offensive players, especially McDavid and Dreisaitl, but even Ryan Nugent Hopkins isn't anything to scoff at. And that's that's a really good thing. That's a good problem to have is, is you know, too much offense. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, you get into shootouts or you're relying on a few players to generate a lot of offense. Are you concerned at all about having so much offense tied up into, you know, those three players?
1: I mean, I think it has to be concerning, like looking at that from a logical perspective, you know, like it doesn't take a – you know, a a genius hockey analyst to look at that and say, wow, if one of those guys gets hurt, they're in trouble. And I mean, you could say that for a lot of teams, like if Pittsburgh loses Crosby, that they're in trouble too. But when you have that much high end offensive production from two or three guys, it's even more so in that, that extent. Right. So I, I think it's, it's worrisome. And I think really the only way to fix that for Edmonton is like we do have a pretty good pipeline of guys coming up. And you even saw, you know, from January 1st on, Kyler Yamamoto had a really big impact offensively and them starting that, you know, second line. But probably our, our first line, definitely as far as production anyways goes, of Yamamoto, Nuge, and Dreisaitl centering them. So it, it's, you know, it's worrisome for sure. But I think that there's reinforcements coming and and it's just going to be a matter of time before that forward core really gets rounded out. But on the flip side, I think, you know, you got to give credit where credit is due. You look back at last season, uh, meaning the like 18-19 season, and I think the Oilers had six players with 10 goals or more and one of those being a D-man and Darnell Nurse. So that's five forwards with 10 goals or or above, obviously. And this year we had eight with... Uh, I believe Riley Shahan had eight on the year. So we could potentially have nine if this season gets played out. So there is, you know, they're moving in the right direction, especially when you look at how absolutely dominant our power play is. I think we were, as it sits right now, if the season ended right now, we'd be the fifth best power play of all time. So that that's definitely beneficial as well. But, you know, when you look at the 515 production, when those guys aren't going, yeah, it can be tough sledding, I guess you could say, for the rest of the team to get that, that, goal production going
0: you know this team it, it kind of makes me it reminds me of when the penguins were in their heyday and and they had uh crosby malkin and kessel and they they broke them up and put them each on their own line mm-hmm. uh how, how do you think in terms of like deployment uh for mcdavid Ray and and right hopkins w- what makes the most sense it doesn't it make sense to put them all on their on their own line or do you just roll those two lines
1: i think in an ideal situation if they had the winger depth that you know that you would like to have. It would be awesome to have that McDavid, Drysdale, Nuge all as your your top three centers. I think as it sits right now, you know Zach Cassian kind of emerged as an at times very productive player on on um, McDavid excuse me's wing, but even he was a little bit inconsistent. And then other than that, like I mentioned, you have Nuge and Yamamoto. So really, like it's tough to have Nuge as that third line center. And I think you really, even with it, when you look at McDavid and Drysettle playing together, although those guys are absolute money together, it's a lot more balanced to have them play, you know, in, in certain situations where you saw coming off a penalty kill. So, say there's 10 seconds left in a penalty kill. Oftentimes you'd see McDavid and Drysettle out there together trying to take advantage of a, of a change in a, a potentially tired unit. And so you, you kind of deploy them in a, in a certain specific instances right um but as far as trying to get you know those guys playing together all the time I think it's just one of those things where you shut that line down and our team just really doesn't have enough jump offensively to contend with with very many teams in the NHL and and sometimes they're rolling and they can be dominant but when they're not it's just it's kind of a one-trick pony for lack of a better term I guess um and then when you you know getting back to the idea of having three centers, you know those three guys all playing center, ideally, yes, but we just really don't have the winger depth. Um, I think bringing in Andreas Athanasiou, who I've been a huge fan of for for months, um, talking with the the Red Wings guys, hoping that we would trade for him, so I was absolutely thrilled when we got him, but you know in the thirteen odd games he played, he really didn't you know identify himself as a dominant or even really good top six winger option. he was really inconsistent, which is to be expected I guess coming into a new team but we you know it, long story short to kind of wrap this up sorry I know I'm ranting oh you're good we really just don't we don't have the winger depth I mean there's guys coming up the pipeline so hopefully one day Nuge can be that lights out amazing third line center option but I think at this point you're going to see a pair of, you know out of those three guys you're going to see a pairing of either Nuge and Dryside or Dry and McDavid or, or any combination of those three and then the other guy by himself with two other wingers
0: yeah that that makes a lot of sense and I guess we got that figured out right we just solved their <laughs> offensive uh their offensive <laughs> problems right but defense I, I know this is a uh this is all I feel like this is always a thing with with the Oilers at least like the national media this is something they are always focusing on is for sure <laughs> the defense and it feels like it's always a perennial problem, and First things first, I got to ask the Hall for, for Larson one for one trade in hindsight, would you still make that deal again today?
1: No. So I was a, I don't even want to say a defender of that trade at that time. Cause I think it was difficult to defend. I think it made sense in the, um, in, in the specific reasoning that hall has had been kind of revealed as maybe a little bit of a, a locker room culture problem, but you know, we, we obviously need a defense, and I, I like Adam Larson. I, I feel so bad that Larson always kind of seems to get the, the shit end of the stick, for lack of a better term there, just because he's always going to be tied to that trade. But he's a, he's a really good defenseman. But yeah, looking back, no, I, I wouldn't have made that trade. I think if patience was shown and it came out that Charelli pretty much that was the one offer he got, and he just took it, which especially in the offseason, it's, it's kind of a head-scratching move even now looking back and you know you look at adam henrique was traded to anaheim later on and and he's a guy that you know the oilers have been looking for that third line center for quite a while you could have looked at adding you know like adam henrique and adam larson for taylor hall that's a much more even trade and and probably is still very beneficial for both teams um so no i I mean looking back you really can't defend or say that that trade you know was a good trade i think it it worked out decently well in the sense that after hall's heart campaign he's kind of taken a step back you see him you know not not struggling but not putting out the production that was expected of him in arizona and i think adam larson had a a couple tough years in between this season and our and his first year here and you know lost his dad during that time and seemed, you know, I don't want to speculate, but seemed anyways to have a, a little bit of a, a mental issue as far as that side of the game goes. And he seemed to, you know, find his game again and has been that impact top four defensive defenseman. So it's it's not as bad as some people make it out to be, but it's tough to say that yeah, you know, that was a fair trade and we should make it again.
0: Right, right. So I guess looking ahead, uh, what do you think that needs to be done differently on defense to you know, get, get them to cup contention. I don't want to say they're not cup contenders right now, but I think to get into that, like upper echelon, like the elite tier of teams, uh, what do they need defensively?
1: Well, yeah. And I think that's fair. I think the Oilers are dark horse contenders right now, trying to be unbiased and objective as I can there Um, right now. Like if you look at specifically their defensive core, not just their team defense, I think one of the things that people that aren't Oilers fans need to realize is our decor has been very, very young. And, you know, you look at just now, um, Larson and Clefbaum are entering their prime at 26, 27, which you could even argue that for defensemen, they're not really hitting their prime till 28, 29 for the vast majority of D-men. And then you look at Nurse, obviously another top four impact defender. He's only 25 still. And then rounding out, you've got Chris Russell, who's over 30, and he's that veteran presence as well as um, Ethan Bear emerged this year as a young, I think he's 21 or 22. Same thing with Caleb Jones, uh, Seth Jones, his younger brother. So it's still very very young. I mean, you could look at the Oilers' defense and say, yeah, you know, would we like a number one D-man, like a number one right shot D-man? Absolutely. But the unfortunate thing is those are extremely expensive to get and extremely expensive to keep contract-wise. So I, I think when you look at that Oscar Kleffbaum when healthy, I mean, he's a top 31 defenseman in the NHL, in my opinion. So you've got your number one guy. Um, I think a lot of that, it, it just comes from, you know, what this team needs to get to answer your question there, to get to that cup contention as far as the defensive core. I really think it, it, it gets down to keeping that core together and continuing to develop. I mean, you've seen them take baby steps year over year at, at five on five. The goals against is still definitely an issue. But I think Tippett is bringing a little bit of stability to that. And, you know, they're increasing where you look at last season. I mean, the year before this, this current one, we were at 3.3 goals against per game, which is 25th. This year, we were at 3.03 up to 15. So you're middle of the pack. Right. So I think you're seeing that, that improvement, right, as far as statistics go. And, I mean, you could even argue that Darnell Nurse kind of took a step back this year. So it's not even like to get there, all of our defensemen are having career years. You know, Bear was a big emergence. Caleb Jones was a big emergence this year. But, you know, not to use the cop-out of, oh, reinforcements are coming. We just have to be patient. But I do genuinely think that that is the case because you look in Bakersfield, we have, uh, sorry, uh, we have Bouchard as well as Samarukov, who's been a little bit of a a late emergence after his draft year, as well as Broberg, who was a top 10 pick last year. So they're definitely coming. And I think we just really have a young core I think, you know, if money permits, it'd be nice to add, you know, that guy that's kind of already in his prime, maybe 29, 30. But the issue is when you bring in impact defensemen that are 29, 30 years old, oftentimes you're paying them till they're 35, 36, yeah. which I don't really think that's what this team needs as we're already kind of getting into a better situation contract wise. So I mean, I don't know if I don't know if that answered your question a hundred percent there, Matt, but I really think that the maybe the decor isn't quite as bad as some NHL fans think. I think it's kind of an easy target in a way, as far as if you're, if you're chirping the Oilers. And I think a lot of it is just going to come from development and, and these guys kind of finding their groove and entering their prime.
0: No, I, you answered my question perfectly. Cause that's, it's good to know that it's not a lost cause. It's a situation, like you said, where they're, they have the players, they're just young. And as we talked about Mm -hmm. before we started recording, hashtag trust the process you know like yeah develop like (laughs) what you don't want to do is rush something and and trade away uh you know people with with high ceilings to try to get instant gratification right now i think patience will pay off for the oilers because like you said i mean i was just looking at at some some cursory numbers and everything and yeah i mean i think uh, a few of these uh these young guns look really good especially uh caleb jones in his limited ice time it did extremely well, especially uh, offensively.
1: Really good. Yeah. Like really good underlying numbers too. And I think the thing with Jones is that like, he he's a really good skater similar to his brother, but just kind of a little bit of a, you know, later bloomer. And he, he's had to take those steps, you know, baby steps year over year. Right. And now you're starting to see that it's like, you know, you look at him and bear and before where previous management, I mean, whether it was the Shirelli area or era or before that, one of the things that really plagued this team through our what we call the decade of darkness was banking on those young players to mm-hmm. make an immediate impact. And I think now, you know, going into the season, there was no banking on, oh, you know, Bear needs to be a top four D man. He just came into camp, was way better than he was last year. And now all of a sudden we have a top four right handed D man. So and and similar to Jones, I mean, he's been more of that third pairing guy when Russell and Clefbaum had injuries, but you're starting to see these guys not be rushed and forced in these roles, and they're actually just earning it. So, you know, in previous years, Bouchard would have been on the Oilers this year for sure, and he didn't play at all. So, I, I think they're really, you know, under the the leadership of Ken Holland as well as Tippett behind the bench, they're really being more patient. And I think, as much as Oilers fans were kind of known to be impatient ourselves, and we want that, you know, we want the yeah. heyday of the '80s back, even though I wasn't alive for that, but it's really good to see that management show that patience and, and properly develop these guys. And I think you look at guys like Clefbaum and Nurse, when they were 20, 21, they probably weren't really shown that patience that they needed. And I think that could have even stunted their their development, even though they have turned into pretty good defensemen.
0: Amen. I, I, love, I love to see it. You know, like uh, as much as it's great to make deals and, and play the free agency game, it's nice to see draft and developing actually pay off rather than, you know, somebody trying to put like a fantasy team together.
1: Exactly. And, and that's the thing where like, you look at all the long-term good teams like that have been, that haven't had that huge steep rebuild where they were just bad for five to six years, all those teams draft very well and they don't make big, huge splashes every summer. As much as, as fans, you know, we love those blockbuster t- trades, and those and those big free agent signings, but a lot of the time they don't work out. So, as boring as it can be, I, I think that's the right right way to yeah, go. Trust
0: that process, man. Yeah,
1: trust the process. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do you have any final thoughts on uh, on scoring balance or the Oilers in general? Uh, I mean,
1: I think as the Oilers in general, anyone that's not Oilers fan listening, I mean, I, I think Drysital really emerged as went from being like a franchise cornerstone, even with being on the same roster as McDavid to emerging as that, like, I mean, he was probably the best player in the world this year. And I I think it's, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll admit my bias right away, but in my personal opinion, I don't really think it was close. I think he's the heart trophy winner, whether this season, you know, finishes or we just end it where it's at. And, you know, as far as like, since I know you are like a stats focused podcast, I can't remember the exact year that Lemieux did this, but Dry was on pace to score 50 goals and hundred points in back-to-back seasons. And he was the first player that was on pace to do that. Assuming he would, he would be the first player to do that since Lemieux did it in the nineties. So I know we, we had kind of, I had kind of a beef, you know, a, fr- a friendly beef with the Jets guys on the network. And they were saying Hellebuck was, should be the heart winner this year. And I mean, in my, in my respective or, you know, respectful opinion, I just don't think it's close. I think Dreisaitl had one of the best statistical you know, back-to-back seasons and season this year in the last 20, 30 years in the NHL. So as far as statistics go, and just, I mean, not even statistics. The guy's just a pleasure to watch, and we're almost kind of getting spoiled as Oilers fan here.
0: I'm not getting in the middle of that, uh, but... I uh, know <laughs> that's fair. But, but as far as, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, Dry Settle has been a spectacular offensive player, and uh, I don't think anybody can deny that. Yeah, he he's
1: just, I, I think he's the the epitome of what you want in a power forward in today's NHL. Like, I think there's, you know, you look at like Austin Matthews and that guy can shoot the puck better than Dreisaitl can, but Dreisaitl is just so good at so many things where he has that unreal strength. Like I guarantee he's one of the strongest players in the NHL can absolutely just body people and protect the puck like the best of them. He's got a great shot, great one-timer, an absolute phenomenal passer like backhand sauce across the ice. No problem. Just insane vision as well as his defense is starting to, to get there. I know that was there, you know, as far as the advanced statistics have really, you know, been against him even this year.
0: Yeah. It, it doesn't look good.
1: <laughs> it doesn't look good at all. But I mean, if you watch the games, he's definitely starting to do the right things. I think consistency is the th- where he struggles, especially defensively, where, you know, like a, most young players, he's, he still has lapses in that zone, but he's getting there. And I think he's really, you know, based off interviews and, and, you know different segments they've done on him dating back to like the training camp last year that's something he's really been focusing on and he's been watching was watching a lot of tape on Pavel Datsuk, and trying to be that like dominant two-way player so I I think I think you're just seeing the start of Leon Tricet on the NHL and I I think he's gonna cause some teams some absolute nightmares over the next you know five to ten to fifteen years here
0: oh I'm sure as I do with all my guests, I want to give you the floor. If you have any projects you're working on, anything you want to plug or anyone you want to give a shout out to, the floor is yours.
1: You know, it's, it's funny, Matt. I, as much as I, I appreciate it, I, I don't have a ton to promo. We don't, you know, we're kind of finding our groove in this pandemic podcasting goes. Um, but yeah, check us out at Oil Country Pod on Twitter. We have some uh, pretty exciting uh, local guests that we're working on as far as comedians and draft guys and stuff that we're still kind of scheduling. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're really looking forward to that. I don't have anything super, super specific to plug uh, shout out to my co-host, Kyle. He's under the weather right now. So he wasn't able to join Matt and I here today, but hope he's feeling better. And all that's really going on for us out of the podcasting. Um, we're kind of doing a, who do the Oilers fans hold the biggest grudge against as far as Twitter voting. Um, as much as I'd love to plug that it is kind of more specific for Oilers fans. We don't really want that impact from other fans around the NHL but if any Oilers fans are listening we'd love to get your your votes on Twitter there um, I think so far it's Kessler Perry on the player side and then we have Shirelli and Eric Francis who's a Flames uh, media guy so those are kind of our final four but that's really all that's going on for us but yeah check us out at the Royal Country Pod on Twitter and thank you very much for having me.
0: Oh, fantastic. And and thank you for, for joining me. And, uh, I want to wish you and the Oilers the best of luck this season.
1: Much appreciated. Hopefully we, uh, hopefully we see some hockey this year. I want to, um, I want to see the, uh, Stanley cup obviously awarded, but sorry, I actually, that did make me think we do Matt as far as the network goes, um, we're having like a little bit of a bet. I don't, I don't think you're involved in it yet, but maybe, maybe you should be, we're having a, uh little bit of a bet as far as if we think the Stanley cup will be awarded this year, or if the season's going to get canceled, it's about 50% on either side. And so far it's mainly losers are going to have to donate like a small amount of money as well as shotgun some beers or, or chug some beers on, <laughs> on social media. So check that out and that'll be on our Twitter as well, but we're looking forward to that. And I think everybody has their fingers crossed that the, the Stanley Cup's going to be awarded either way.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: But yeah. Other than that thanks. Thanks again for having me really appreciate it.
0: If we bring this thing up to date, And look at this season, this year, Edmonton also takes the cake being the most top-heavy team. Not as top-heavy as they were last year, but they still generate 60% of their total forwards offense from Drysaddle, McDavid, Nugent Hopkins, and Cassian. And there's a pretty big drop-off at even strength. Minnesota, on the other hand, has been the most balanced team this year, with almost seven players totaling 60% of their offense. And here's a crazy stat, Minnesota's forwards have actually produced more goals than Edmonton did. Who would have thought that? But if I go back and run the same test I performed in Number Crunch, they yielded similar results the past few seasons. There's really no statistically significant relationship between forward balance and your team's point totals. So there you have it, folks. Narrative has been busted. The idea that depth is a necessary component of winning is overblown. Unless you have a major injury, or lose a player due to suspension, or get line matched in the playoffs, or you get the point. I think the conclusion we should draw is that while it's not a necessary condition for success, it's still a really nice thing to have. If you have forward depth and you can break up your scoring across multiple lines, that's better for your team, even if the evidence suggests it doesn't matter as much. But on that note, thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week. I'm going to be looking at my own version of luck. I already talked about PDO about a month ago. I'm gonna to try to come up with my own measurement. To capture the luckiest and unluckiest teams in recent history and remember folks drink and think responsibly thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of ice analytics your source for nhl stats and analysis hosted by the hockey podcast network every team everywhere you can find me on twitter at ice analytics and you can find the show notes at www.statsenforcer.com if you like this episode be sure to subscribe to our feed and leave us a review